Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a talk from Jeff Myers on how to lead worship. This talk was given at a conference 20 years ago, back in 2001. So there may be some instruction and thoughts here and there that Jeff or other people on the Theopolis staff would have updated thoughts on, but we still think this will be a very helpful listen for you, especially those of you who seek to lead in the Lord's service. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here's Jeff Myers on how to lead worship. Some things that I think us ministers need to reflect on, especially with regard to the execution of the service. And I've titled this uh, lecture, Combing Out the Tangles, and I got that from uh, one of my seminary student interns, and I sent them all out an email, or many of them anyway, an email asking them, and I know some of you are here and wondering why you get the emails, because I got the wrong email address from you. Rob, I don't have your email address. I said, you know, what was it like after you come down from the Mount of Transfiguration Providence in St. Louis, go down into the demon-possessed world, and, and you know, what, what is it that, that uh, you think ministers, people need to hear and, and learn? What, and um, one of the guys wrote back and talked about how various tangles need to be combed out. Now, I could relate to that. I've got three older girls, and I have often watched them brush their hair and yank those tangles out of their hair. And when they finish yanking all those tangles out, they have a head of glory, a crown of glory. I wonder if the church is not like that. She's the bride. And our liturgy is the one place where we go public with who we are um, with our husband, with the Lord Jesus Christ, our interacting and speaking and talking with him. And so we got to be careful, I think, that there are no tangles in that liturgical crown of glory we wear it oftentimes the tangles come from ministers from us we need to acknowledge that so what I'd like to do this morning is walk through the Lord's Day liturgy according to the pattern of covenant renewal as we heard it described here at least in outline form and, and uh, comb out the tangles are typically not us up for 21st century conservative American Presbyterian ministers uh, this is this is what we might call liturgics. Um, this is this is the nitty gritty, the nuts and bolts. Well, surely, ten years from now, I will have learned and grown in in ways and might not say some of these things. But this is where I am now, and I think this is probably where most of us are now uh, in thinking about these things. So I hope that what I say will be helpful. You know the old Chesterton quip. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Well, liturgical worship has often not been tried and found wanting, but it has been left untried. And it's been found difficult, especially by ministers. And because it is difficult, we will often, as ministers lapse back into our familiar, comfortable way of dealing with one another on, on the casual level, on the chat level. Um, I've noticed this. Um, it's, it's difficult for us to cultivate 
this kind of demeanor, the kind of demeanor necessary, and I'll talk about this, for a liturgical service. And so um, we, we feel more comfortable for acting like David Letterman, you know, or joking around, or just, you know, being, being good old Jeff Myers up there in the pulpit. But this is really, your leadership in the liturgy is on a higher plane. It's a different sort of event. And what you normally do, even when you're doing pastoral work with someone in their home, it's just, this is a higher register. And it requires thought. It requires practice and preparation. Um, and, and I don't know, I don't know where we can get that practice and preparation. And then you guys come to this and you read books, you read articles, you may have listened to tapes. Uh, you have an interest, uh, a desire to, to try to understand a deeper, richer, more participatory worship service. And, but you know, where do you get that? Where, where, do you, where do you learn how to do that? It doesn't come from reading books. Um, and... And this is a difficult thing. Uh, unless you see it modeled, unless you experience it, you're not likely to be able to do it yourself. Now, I'm, I mean, I praise God for this all the time. When I was in college and I, and I was brought back to the faith by uh, campus organizations, I was told to despise my Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod upbringing. I was I was taught I was taught to despise it and to make all kinds of derogatory comments about it. But as I've grown older, I've come to recognize that I learned a great deal just from being in that service week after week after week, observing how pastors conduct themselves, how they speak, how they do the liturgy. Um, I've got that stuff just ingrained in me. Uh, I know these these prayers of confession. I know what I know the minister's part uh, by heart. I go into the church down the road when I'm on vacation at LCMS Church that uses the old LH Lutheran the old Lutheran hymnal from the 40s, which I grew up with. And they're saying, oh, I just I don't even need to look at the book. I just stand there, and, and it's really kind of freeing. Just stand there and go through the liturgy and, and just revel in the fact that I know the glory and excelsis and the sanctus and the agnus day. I may not agree about where they're all placed and all that kind of stuff, but it's it's an amazing thing. Um, so where are we going to go as ministers to learn this? I don't know that I can do this in a lecture. Uh, if you're listening to this tape or if you're sitting here watching me, how, how can I do this? You, you really have to you really have to experience this. You have to be with it. And I encourage you, I know this is hard because you only get four weeks of vacation every year, but spend some of that time in a church that you think you'll experience, especially in terms of ministerial leadership, something of what we're talking about. Um, but um, execution is a great deal is a big, important point here. Um, 
In liturgical worship, execution is almost everything. Because it's like, it's like real estate, you know? What, what are the three most important things? Location, location, location. Well, in liturgical worship, three most important things are execution, execution, and execution. Because you can have your content down, you can have the right psalms, you can have the right things to say, and if you do it sloppily, or nervously, or slowly, or with your head down, reading it or something, it's not going to work. You can forget about it. A slow droning of the liturgy may work for a while in well-established Lutheran or Episcopal congregations simply because these people aren't going anywhere else. And that's, that's really true. I, um, I attended a Wisconsin Synod Lutheran Church in my area a few years ago. And I was just amazed. After about ten minutes of the service, I was looking around for a Coke machine, or better, a jolt. I mean, I was about ready to fall asleep. I've never experienced the liturgy performed so slowly, so unenergetically, uh, just so limp. Uh, I don't know how people put up with it. It, it was just amazing. I, I, I think a lot of what we do is about pace and tempo. Knowing when to speed up, knowing when to slow down. And you don't learn this from books. You learn it by example, by being with someone who does it. You know, often in our circles, the adjectives traditional and liturgical are identified. But in most very conservative English Presbyterian churches, I mean American English-speaking Presbyterian churches, traditional means that the pastor does everything. Traditional means a slow boring service that is heavily didactic uh, and where the people maybe sing a hymn or two uh, and that not very energetically as it turns out. Uh, you have elements, but they're not very well ordered in a service. And the whole thing is a rather ponderous and mental thing. The congregation listens and thinks, occasionally singing. Uh, but even then, the singing is usually dumbed down so that there won't be any rhythm or any beat or certainly not fast. It has to be slow. Well, you see, if we're going to renew and reform our worship services, we're going to have to think through this about how we execute the service and what our role is as ministers in that execution, in that performance. So back, back to my point. The problem is experiencing this kind of worship. Where will you go to find examples of it? Who's doing it? I, I'll mention this. Um, not for any selfish or arrogant reasons, but we had a presbytery meeting in our church uh, last year. And um, various presbyters in our in, in Missouri Presbytery, I think, had a certain opinion about the way Providence Church worship, just because they've heard things. Well, this is a traditional church, you know. We've got the word reformed in our name, you know. And, and you've got this stereotypical understanding of what that means. Well, I had all the Presbyters there, and we did basically something like what we just did 
here with, of course, a communion service. I had guys coming up to me, some of your professors saying, whoa, we, we, I thought that you were going to have a slow, you know, dreary kind of service, traditional. I, this is amazing. This, this ought to be an example, you know. And I said, well, yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you for that. I, no, I appreciate that, but but that just goes to show that even presbyters and seminary professors have not really often experienced what we're talking about. It's hard to know, I, and and maybe some of you here in that boat, you're not really sure what what we're talking about here. Well, you got a, a little bit of a taste of it here this afternoon, of course, without the Lord's Supper. There's a real sense which you can't simply read and think about this. Uh, you have to do it. We're mimetic creatures. We're made to image God and one another. Paul is always talking about imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. So there's got to be liturgical mentoring going on. And I just don't know where it's happening except that our church is probably up there and go to seminary out. I'll uh, make sure the guys at least know something of these things before they graduate. Um, so here, here's what I want to do. Let's let's go through the liturgy. And some of my points have already been made by other lecturers, but I I uh, want to go through the liturgy and concentrate on the minister and his leadership and performance as the representative, the spokesman, the ambassador of Jesus Christ for the people. Um, step by step, let's and I have an opportunity to make some suggestions about form and content too. Let's start with, first of all, the call to worship. Call to worship. Already we're into this gray area where there's a couple of ways to do it. You know, Jim mentioned you could have a procession, a processional hymn. But in any event, whether you have a processional hymn or whether you start with the ministers up there and they give the call to worship, you have to have an authoritative call to worship from the Scripture. It should be clear, and it should be a call, not a prayer, not a suggestion. You know, maybe it'd be a good idea, guys, if we worship this morning. You know, sometimes your, your tone will 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 uh, uh, will will communicate something. You know. You've got to do it authoritatively. You're speaking as a minister of Jesus Christ. You're speaking for the Lord Jesus Christ. You're gathering his bride together um, for worship. And so make it a call, not a prayer. Now, what do you do? Where do you find these? Well, um, you find them mostly from portions of the psalm. And I think it's always a good idea if you use a portion of the psalm to call the people to worship, to sing that psalm in response, if you can find it in the hymnal or in your psalter. Uh, you can use that as a, as a way of responding. You can st- still um, um, the late Dr. Rayburn's book, Oh Come Let Us Worship, is still a good source for calls for worship and for other types of practical nuts and bolts issues. Uh, passages to choose for various parts of the service. We still look there with some profit. So, call the people to worship. Um, choose a passage that calls. 
not one that's addressed to oneself, like David addresses himself, Oh, come my soul. Well, that doesn't work for a call. Uh, or where David is conversing with himself or stirring himself up. That doesn't quite work. Uh, that's okay for a, a psalm or a hymn of response, but choose something that is really a call. Now, there are other ways to do this. And I haven't talked to you, Jim, or about this in a long time. But I would say the ministerial call is the ordinary way to do this. But there may be other ways to call the congregation too, although you start muddling the source of that call when you give it, say, to the choir to call the congregation to worship, or when the congregation calls themselves to worship, say, antiphonally, that's all that's also possible. Um, but I think you should stick with um, a ministerial call from the Psalms. Make it authoritative and try your best to look people in the eye. Memorize parts of that before you come to the, before you come to the, uh, uh, the Lord's service in the morning. Uh, practice it. Look guys, I remember, I don't know, some of you guys may do this already. I, I don't know, I'm not, don't mean to be, uh, patronizing to any of you. But I've been surprised how many people don't think about this. Practice it. Go Saturday night to the church when there's nobody there and take your liturgy. I had to do this for a number of months um, when I first became a pastor and I was up in front of the congregation. And I noticed, I, I just remember, I see my interns do this, and I remember how terrifying it is to be up in front of people leading worship. It's, it, you, you don't think it's going to be terrifying, but all of a sudden you're standing up there and you've got to look at the people and you've got to remember what comes next and what you're supposed to say. And your tendency is going to be, when you're nervous, to get chatty. To get, oh, you know, and just loosen up and, you know, that's what you do. That's what I do when I'm nervous. Uh, see, what that does, your people will feel sorry for you. And I notice people feel sorry for some of the interns the first couple times they get up there. But you know, that's not the point of the worship service. It takes the focus completely off of what's happening. And the people feel sorry for you. That's why you wear a robe or, or something so that you emphasize your office and try to be, and try to get your personality behind your function. So practice. Go, go Saturday night and, and work through. I did this for a number of months before I, uh, before I worshiped, before I had to lead worship when my pastor Paul Alexander down in Huntsville, Alexander, Huntsville, uh, Alabama was, uh, mentoring me as when I became an assistant out of seminary. Uh, I found out I really didn't know a whole lot about leading worship because I'd never done it all that much. And I, every, I'd even do this with sermon. I'd go, Saturday night, and I just practiced because I was so terrified when I got in front of people. And, and it helped. It really does help. And if you're, if you're just implementing liturgical worship, I would suggest you do that. Now, I'm not saying that you need to be overly formal and stiff. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. You should practice, um, you know, practice something that will look foreign or weird to your people an affected manner of speech or something like that. 
uh, I'm saying that you will look most natural when you have thought and practiced and memorized what you're going to say. And it'll, it'll, it'll be transparent to your people. They won't, they won't know that you practice. It'll, it'll just be very smooth and seamless. So, you have that call to worship, and then follows your first hymn or psalm. Now, Jim mentioned this, and you guys might have missed this. I'd point out what section was that, Jim, what you were dealing with in terms of the, the, the proper music for each each moment in the worship service. It's somewhere in there. He mentioned, you might have missed this, but you need to choose appropriate hymns with appropriate content and music for each of these uh, places in the liturgy where the people are singing. Here, after the call, you need to choose a hymn or a psalm that would be focused on praise. Or on God's attributes. So, you know, those first, if you're going to do a hymn, the first 20, 30, 40, uh, hymns in the Trinity, and I'm, I'm still using the old Trinity hymnal, uh, in the old Trinity hymnal, focus on God. Uh, you need to choose a hymn that's vigorous. We sang Psalm 40, 146 here. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. Omar. And, yeah, that, that's a great example of an opening psalm. Vigorous. Loud, with praises Yahweh. Yeah, the opening of the service is not necessarily time for a reflective uh, meditation, or or even a um, song that deals with sins and confession. Uh, if you're going to have an opening hymn, then I think you ought to make it a hymn of praise following the call. Now, there's a whole other there's a whole other option here. That is, you could do it like the Lutherans do it. The Lutherans do not. They start with a, a hymn, a processional hymn, which generally has these characteristics. But after that processional hymn and the pastor comes up, they go immediately to the confession of sin. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins to God our Father, beseeching Him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. You know, they do that immediately so that well, the first thing you really do when the pastor comes up is confess your sins, have the absolution, and then move on from there. I, I think that's a good way to do it, too. But whatever way you do it, you, you ought to be consistent and do it regularly that way. Um, look at the words and look at the music, appropriate music. Uh, Jim mentioned this, appropriate music for the opening hymn is I'm not a musician, so I don't know how to use all the right words here. Uh, a bright, uh, kind of energetic song, which is talking about, but we just, and then at various other places, at the, at the Lord's Supper, something more, that would, that would foster meditation, quiet, uh, quiet reflection, maybe, uh, and then at the end of the service, the last hymn is March-like, uh, vigorous to send you out into the world. Just think about how those things fit in uh, to the service. Now, there are opening responses that I'd like to say a few things about. We use these three opening responses in the morning prayer. The first one is, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, look, 
I think it's important that we identify the worship right up front. This is worship in the name of God. And when I say God, I mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is Christian worship. So I think that kind of declaration is important. The next thing we say is, the Lord be with you. And the response, and also with you, or the Lord bless you. Um, you, you know, these, um, these, these uh, responses and these things, these elements and, and um, phrases in the worship service are all just Bible passages stitched together. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's just Matthew 28. That's the name you're baptized in. So let's remind ourselves who we are and let's tell the world that we're gathering in the name of the one who baptized us. This is our identity. This is who we are. This is our name. When And the Lord be with you is from Ruth chapter 2, verse 4. It's the response that Boaz gives to his workers. Uh, but I think this, this, this also serves an important role that people don't think about very much. Aside from the obvious fact that it's more dignified and reverent than hello everybody or good morning, this salutation has a meaningful function in the inauguration of the worship service. When the minister says the Lord be with you, he declares his intention to lead the people in worship. And he desires and prays that the Lord would bless the congregation as they worship under his leadership. The minister acknowledges that he will be the instrument by which the Lord is present with and serves his people during the service. And when the people respond, and also with you, they verbally affirm their pastor's leadership, as well as their desire to see him blessed as he performs his pastoral office. See, there's a bond of trust and love established verbally between the pastor and his congregation. And once that's renewed through the Lord be with you and also with you, the people are now ready to receive the Lord's service and gifts as they are delivered to them through the instrumentality of their pastor. And now the pastor is reminded too of his function, and he's ready to become transparent as a vehicle of the Lord's voice to the people. Well, that's mixing that metaphor. Um, so Paul talks about taking heed to yourself and your teaching, holding to it, or by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Okay, so the Lord be with you is, is I think, in it, men. If you just explain that to your people. Once I explain that to the people, well, what's that for? Oh, Catholics do it, so maybe it's a good idea we do it. Or if it, or if it, this is, this is really simple. If you just, if you just put that in your service someday and don't tell people about it, you're in trouble. You know, you just, if you walk in your service someday and you haven't worn a robe, and you just walk in one day and you wear a robe, you're in trouble. I know someone that did this, and then when someone asked about it, I said, oh, well, you know, I'm tired of washing my suits. <laughs> it really happened. Okay. Well, now, wait a minute. That's not how you do things. And 
Dr. Rayburn talked about that this morning. Oh, you, you introduced it in a Sunday school class. You write a little paper, an article, put it in your newsletter, distribute it out to people. Um, uh, I haven't worn this this uh, uniform here very much at all in St. Louis, actually. In fact, it's been the last week that I've uh, started to do it more regularly. Uh, I have worn it here and there, and especially to important functions downtown now, and I even got on TV once. And then number my people said, I saw you on TV. <laughs> You're wearing a collar. I said, yeah, well, I'll do that when I want to be identified as the minister in a public gathering like that. But, uh, but what, what I did is I passed out, I got that little article back there, I passed it out to the elders. I'm going to let them interact with it. I'm going to talk to the people about it. Um, and, 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 I've already gotten a great response. I don't wear, I'm not going to wear it on Sunday morning. That doesn't mean, but if you, some of you guys do, it's fine. But I've got a robe. I've got enough to identify me as a pastor on Sunday morning. This is for out in the community so that I'll have opportunities for ministry and evangelism with people I would otherwise not have that opportunity. So, but, but my point is, back to my, my point is, it's really not very hard. If you explain these things to people, our people are not dumb. They're pretty smart. And if you give them an explanation for things, and if if it works, if it's a good explanation, they'll buy it. That's the same thing. Same thing is true with, with visitors to your church. If you can get in their home as a pastor and and see if they have any questions about the liturgy, you know, if you can get in there and explain to them why you're doing things. They'll come back and experience worship in a different way the next time, and you may have them hooked. Well, you have, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have the Lord be with you, and also have a responsive scripture appropriate to the season. Now, where do you find those? The responsive scripture we used was from Psalm 124. Um, um, Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth, commonly called the Bodem. But you can also put in there seasonal kinds of responsibilities. Where would you find them? Here's a drilled nuts and bolts kind of thing. Where do you find them? You have all kinds of resources. And you, as a pastor, again, I don't mean to patronize you, but you ought to have on that shelf next to your desk, you ought to have the old Book of Common Worship, the 1940 Book of Presbyterian Book of Common Worship. You ought to have the Book of Common Prayer, 1928. You ought to have the Book of Common Prayer, 1981, is it? The revision? 79, 80s. You ought to have that one. You ought to have the, uh, the one from South Africa. Here's a South African, Anglican Book of Common Prayer, which is interesting. It has different kind of prayers in it. You ought to have the one from India in there. Okay. You ought to have the Lutheran hymnal, LH, which is a Lutheran church in Missouri Synod, about 1940. You ought to have LW, which is Lutheran worship, which is the LCMS 1983 uh, revision. By the way, they're coming up with a new one now. It'll probably be out in a couple years. You ought to have the Wisconsin Synod. Lutheran hymnal there, by the way, Lutheran hymnals have all the liturgy stuff in them. It's all kind of combined into one. You ought to have the old service book and hymnal from the American Lutheran Church. 
Which is that? Is it? What? Yeah, yeah. LCA, Lutheran Church in America. Uh, it, it's, uh, I didn't, I did bring my copy, but it's back upstairs. Which is a marvelous, uh, course for liturgy. Uh, that, that one you ought to have, you can get these things in used bookstores or on the internet. You ought to have, uh, the new Book of Common Worship. You ever seen that? You seen that one? It's a big fat one. It's a new one. There's there's helpful things in there too. It's not all bad. Of course, there's some inclusive language heresy in there, but we we can we know how to to drain that stuff out. Uh, there's some other good stuff there. So you have you gotta have um, well, Dr. Rayburn's book, "Oh Come Let Us Worship." Um, what else? Now these these are just all sources. You have, you have hymns, you have prayers of confession, you have, and what we're dealing with right now, you have responsive readings. You want to find out what day of the year it is? Well, if you have those things there, you can find it out very easy. What, what, what day of the church year is it? Is it Trinity Sunday? Is it Pentecost Sunday? You know, is it the season of, uh, is it Trinity season or is it Lent season? And, what kind of responsive readings should I can I use for uh, Lent? Well, it's all right there. Textweek.com also has a whole whole this amazing set of hyperlinks. Pretty pretty bad sometimes. Don't don't follow through the sermon links, but they have linked. Uh, all sorts of Lutheran, Episcopal, uh, uh, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic uh, explanations and, and, and prayers. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's probably it's like so much there that it's hard to know what to do with it. Uh, I miss anything in terms of resources for that? Yeah. A Moravian hymnal? Really? Moravian? Sure. That's right. Um, Thompson's book, Liturgies of the Western Church, um, has those liturgies all written out. Yes, thank you. Terry Johnson's book, Leading Worship, also has some good, good help. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm old. Leading prayer. It's kind of in a big format and psalms and you know, that, that's helpful. See? I'll give you a better way. Tell the pastor you're really interested in it, and he'll probably give you one. You know? But, but I, I don't know. 
used, used bookstores in, in St. Louis have Lutheran hymnals all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have any like this PCA. This is great. Can I have one of your hymnals? Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yes. Right. Yeah. If you if you if you do that. Yeah, and if you do that, you'll just have to shut the service down and send it by home. <laughs> Sorry. Come back next week. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good point, too. To uh, You can say the responses in order to lead the people in how they're supposed to say it. Um, my congregation's gotten the hang of this, and it doesn't take long that they're supposed to call these out and not just mutter them under their breath. Uh, but by the way, that is, that is an amazing testimony. I remind my people to, to visitors in the church. When they come in your church and they hear, they hear you calling out these responses and reciting the Apostles of Nicene Creed with conviction, that, that's memorable for these people because they probably walked in other liturgical churches and heard just people Mumbling it. When they, when they experience a, a reformed congregation really participating in the liturgy, you, hey, that is, that is our public witness. Who we are, what we believe. We love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Are you going to say something now? <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Now, a word about prayers um, and about, say, the opening prayer, uh, which which ought to be a collect. Jim has mentioned collect. You can find collects all through the Lutheran Episcopal um, uh, hymn books and, and liturgies. Uh, ones appropriate for the season or just general collects. Um, but I, I would say to you, if you, and I even, I even have to do this myself, uh, you know, I've been a minister for a while, not that long. Make sure you think about, and even if necessary, compose your prayers. And if you're just starting off, you need to compose your prayers. Compose them before you come up there. Uh, and make, make a habit of it. And use some of the great prayers and colics available to you. Um, Otherwise, you're either going to pray too long, which is not helpful for the people, or you're going to pray something that's confusing and they can't follow along with, or you're going to just pray something heretical. I'll tell you what, I did this in, in my first year of uh, ministry, preaching on Christmas Eve in Huntsville, Alabama, and my text was uh, from... I guess from Luke 2, I don't remember, on 
on, uh, and it was about Mary. And I was talking about how Mary is a neglected saint. You know, she's the most blessed of women. It's not Roman Catholic to acknowledge her as being faithful and, and a model for the church and all those kinds of things. And Mary, 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 all through my sermon. All, and, and when I finished the sermon, I prayed without a composed prayer. And I kid you not, I prayed in Mary's name. <laughs> I did it. I mean, I have, I've, I've never done anything so embarrassing in my life. I actually said in Mary's name, and I, of course, once I had Mary on the brain. Once I said that, once I said that, I realized that in Jesus' name, I mean, but uh, the, the damage was done. I got, I have got, I still get occasionally phone messages from the Pope wondering if, you know, I'm ready to come into the fold yet and stuff like that. Yeah, that's right. Oh, it, it, that, 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 that brings up another topic, and that is mistakes. I'll, I'll, well, I'll, before I get there, question. Yeah. Right now, There are, yes, there are, or white gowns, maybe. Um, white, a white, is it white and even gown an oxymoron or a contradiction? Contradiction. In white, yeah. No, I don't think so. I um, I don't know that I, I don't know how we can be committed to doing anything just because some other tradition does it that way. Well, there's there's there, there's a logic that from the Bible that would compel one to wear a white robe because white robes are mentioned in the Bible. No, I don't think so. I, unless someone wants to make an argument, I've never. Just tradition. Um, Right. Yeah, that's the way I understand. That's the way I am um, understanding that. It's just it's like the uniform of a policeman or a UPS driver. This just identifies who I am in the community. Uh, that's why I don't feel like I need it on the Lord's Supper because on the Lord's Day, because I'll put a robe on. 
and then that reminds the people of my office as a representative of Christ uh, in the liturgy. So, yeah, the daily dress of a pastor. Not a businessman, but a pastor. It's, and that's been the case in, in much of church history, not in all. The pastors had a daily uniform, daily dress. Um, I was going to say a word about mistakes, making mistakes in services. Yes, don't do them. Don't do that. Uh, oh, we're all going to make mistakes in services. Uh, but it's important not to call attention to yourself when you make a mistake leading worship. Now, your, your tendency is going to want to be, if you make a mistake, to make a joke about it or to, or to make light of it or, you know, turn it into something funny. I, I will always remember the class I had with uh, Dr. Rayburn, Rob's father, on pastoral theology back in the mid-80s. And the one thing he told me, told us, is, man, if you make a mistake leading worship in the liturgy, correct it and move on. Don't call attention to yourself. Don't make a big to-do out of it. Now, it's a different thing in a sermon. You know, if you're, if you, you know, in the middle of a sermon, if you're telling people to be circumspect and you say circumcised, you know, <laughs> you know, you got to stop and laugh at yourself, you know. You got to because it's dumb mistakes like that. But in the, in the service, even something that is really outrageous ought to be just move on. Now, here's the example. Another another one of my problems. First wedding service I ever did. Another thing old Dr. Rayburn told us is to memorize the wedding service. We would in, in his worship class, memorize the entire wedding service and have to recite it to him at the end of the class. That was part of the grade. Memorizing the whole service. And I thought, yeah, that's cool. That's what we ought to be doing. Memorizing the wedding service. That's real great. Just don't do it on your first or second one. Um, I tried it on my first one. Now, and, and here I was before the congregation uh, in Kirk of the Hills Church is a huge, you know, big church in in St. Louis, and um, you got to kind of understand the uh, the circumstances here. I was um, I was <laughs> I was marrying, or I was uh, performing the marriage for my sister's wife Maggie and her husband Joel. So I had my my sister-in-law and my new-to-be brother-in-law. And my father-in-law standing right in front, okay? And my father-in-law was in the process of divorcing his wife of 30 years or so. And it was a real problem in the family, as you can tell. turns out that all of my wife's family has gone from being Roman Catholic, and they're all in PCA churches, all six of the kids and everybody, except for him. He... He bolted, he had an affair with another woman and left. Well, that was all coming out while we were all standing there in the service. And so I was performing that marriage. And after the call to worship and the hymn and confession of sin and the congregation to see it, I began from memory, Dr. Rayburn would be so proud, I thought, to recite the solemnization of marriage. You know, dearly beloved, we are assembled in the presence of God 
to join this man and this woman in holy marriage, which is instituted by God, regulated by his commandments, blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ, and to be held in honor among all men. Let us therefore reverently remember that God has established and sanctified marriage for the welfare and happiness of mankind. Our Savior has declared that a man shall leave his wife. I'm looking him right in the eye. And I, I remember, I remember what Dr. Rayburn said in that class. He just came to me. Correct your mistake and move on. And so, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the apostle, you know, and I just went on. Of course, soaking wet, you know. <laughs> the sweat is kind of spraying off my forehead. But, um, and, and you know, that, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, and it, after all, this is not about you, it's about your ministry, either to this couple or to the bride of Christ. And if you make a mistake, correct it and move on. Now, of course, afterwards you can joke about it, you know, and you're going to get joked. You're going to get a ripped about it, but not during the service. I think that's part of the decorum of the ministry, and I would urge it on all of you. Um, now, let me move on here and talk for a few minutes. I'm obviously not going to get through the whole service, but let me say a few things about um, moving then to the uh, confession of sins, confession and absolution. But a word about transitions, too. I think we should avoid, at all costs, in making transitions through these various moments in the liturgy, we should avoid, at all costs, statements like this. Now we are going to confess our sins. Now we are going to sing a song. Now we are going to have our scripture reading or the sermon. That's just silly. It doesn't fit with... It doesn't fit in the flow. Why say it? Just do it. And if you need to call the people to do it, then call them to do it. Let us sing praise to God using Psalm 98. But these, we, we get too bogged down, too wordy in our execution of the liturgy when we're, when we're saying all this stuff. And the other thing is, men, you might need to do this if you're working your congregation through a... Um, through understanding a, a new liturgy or something, a new approach, you might need to make explanations of elements during the service. But even there, why, you know, don't, don't clutter up things like the, the call to confession of sins. Pick something simple. Beloved in Christ, let us draw near to God with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, etc., etc. Don't stop and then give an illustration. Yeah. Uh, you need to be careful. We, we are so illustration-oriented in our sermonizing that I've heard guys want to put, you know, stories at every place in the liturgy. Well, don't do that. You can fill your sermons with stories. But that doesn't really help. It's not really appropriate at every point in the services. Just go ahead and, and do what you're supposed to do. You don't have to talk about it. Spoken rubrics are unnecessary. Um, and the minister doesn't need to continually tell us what to do. Uh, as I said before, you can, people can read 
the hymns in the service. And it's a, almost a liturgical principle for me. Don't talk about it. Do it. Yes. Yes. What about introducing new uh, practices? I, I would. Here's what I'd say: Do it in Sunday school. Do it in the evening service. I don't see. I don't know what the problem is with practicing the liturgy. If you're going to introduce something new, practice it with the people. Do it in Sunday school. Do it in the evening service. It's a little more informal time of gathering. Do it so that they'll know what's going on and explain it fully. And then, if you're going to implement it in the Sunday morning service, you know, you can put a little box in your bulletin and write a paragraph of explanation what it's about. They can read. There might be some people there that didn't hear your explanation. That's possible. There's all kinds of ways to do that. But let's not load up the service with... Uh, with teaching at every point, and you know, it's overly didactic about everything. Just uh, and and I tell you, when you do this, the service will flow. It'll move. It'll sing. It'll feel right, and the people of God will be brought through this sacrificial order of service into God's presence, and they won't just think that they're getting a mini sermon at every point. Of the service. Well, this, is one, this is just the way for the pastor to preach five different times. No, no. This is what God is doing, and then when it comes time to sit down, hear the pastor explain the passage, then that's the sermon. Okay? Um, so you can practice that. Now, back to then um, the confession of sins. Make a simple call, use a scripture passage. We use the end of Psalm. 95 today, that's possible. You can use uh, one of these classic statements that I've just uttered a few minutes ago from the Lutheran tradition. There's all kinds of ways to do this. I would be kind of consistent on this and, and do, and get some regularity in, in your practice. The other thing is, then when you confess your sin, Jim has already mentioned this, have a confession that people get in them. Uh, and what we do at Providence is we will ha- we will use the same confession of sin for a couple or three months, and we'll cycle through the good ones. So that the good ones we'll probably use maybe six months out of the year, but we'll add some other ones. We'll put some in that are seasonal, seasonally appropriate for Advent or Lent. But let these prayers get in their get in their minds and hearts. I didn't understand this. As a child, I didn't know why I was saying the same thing over and over again. You know what happened to me when I, when I came, when the Lord brought me back to himself in college, I used to think that was my conversion or my regeneration. I know better now. Uh, but I remember getting down on my knees in my college dorm room. And I remember praying a prayer of confession. Now, at the time, I had no idea where that came from. It just kind of came out. And then I remember walking in churches and knowing Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed and knowing all these things and, and just wondering, wow, I know all this stuff. It was drilled into me. You want your people to have this confession of sin in their minds so that when they sin at home and they get down in their bedroom on their knees and face, they'll know what to say. It'll be on their heart and mind. 
And they'll say, and they'll, of course, they're going to say a little more, but you have the basic structure there, and it helps them, it guides them. So, don't be afraid of, of uh, using the same prayers over and over. Now, you're going to have to explain it to people. You're going to have to, you know, give them an argument, because someone's surely going to come up to you like they did to me one time. and said, Pastor... You had the same prayer in there this week that you had last week. Oh, no. They caught me. They caught me. I didn't have any time this week. You know, I just used the same one. That's what they thought I did. I said, no, 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 no. It's, it's the same thing. It's the same hymn even because I want to do this for a number of weeks to get this pattern. We talk about resources for corporate prayers. I don't need to get into that. Let's talk about the absolution just for a moment. I do think this is where your ministerial rubber hits the road. Uh, this is where you can find out whether you're comfortable as a representative of Jesus Christ. Can you with power and conviction, with authority, with as much authority that you use to talk about people's sin? See, we reform people. We can get really detailed and powerful when we're talking about sin. But can you with just as much confidence talk to your people, to the body of Christ who've just been on their knees confessing their sin, can you tell them your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ? Believe that and you have peace with God. You know, can you say that? Yeah, that's, that's what we need to do. Now, this is not the Teobzalvo um, of a Roman Catholic priest or even uh, a very traditional Lutheran who says, I forgive your sins. You've probably heard that before. I forgive your sins. Well, I, I understand their argument for that. I don't know that it really works. You, I can't forgive your sins, but I can declare as a minister of the gospel that your sins are forgiven. As a called and ordained servant of the word, the commission of Jesus Christ to preach the good news, your sins are forgiven. Believe it and have peace. And then they stand up and sing a psalm of thanksgiving, pray, do the Kyrie or whatever. See, see that kind of that kind of strong and can I say manly authoritative declaration is what our people need. They need to hear it. Something psychologically significant about hearing someone else say your sins are forgiven. And not just reading and thinking about it in your Bible. That's what the ministry is for. Now there are um, various declarations of forgiveness of sins. There's the one that I used this morning in the prayer, or this afternoon, it's not morning, it's afternoon prayer. There is um, the alternative in the Lutheran worship, which is, Almighty God, our Father, have our Almighty God, our Father, has had mercy upon us and has given His only Son to die for us. Those who believe on His name, He gives the power to become the children of God and has promised them His Holy Spirit. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Grant this, O Lord, unto us all. Now, I don't like that quite as much. Actually, that statement is put into the Lutheran Book of Worship as an alternate for the guys who are a little bit more low church and don't want to say, "I declare." Your sins are forgiven. This is just almost almost a request. Grant this, O Lord, unto us all. 
Uh, and then there's the Book of Common Worship, the old 1940. Uh, Almighty God who freely pardons all who repent and turn to him, now fulfill in every contrite heart the promise of redeeming grace, and so on. That's in the old Book of Common Worship. Feel free to alter these. I think you can compose your own based on scripture passages, but always give an authoritative declaration of forgiveness. I think that is important as part of our function as ministers of the gospel. What? What is Butcher's absolution? Is it a good one? Um, yes. There's, you look at the reformers and the way they did absolutions, and that will help you too. Um, yes. I, I, I don't think, I, I don't believe that that's the most appropriate way to do it. Now, there, let me say a word about this. Let me say a word about ruling elders and their participation in the leadership of the service. I've assumed that the minister has been front and center in leading the congregation. I believe that's what he's called do. But that, I know that's not the norm these days, and I find that disturbing. I mean, the minister has been ordained to speak for Christ to his people, and the people should be left in no doubt where they are, they're in heaven, and who's speaking to them? God, through his appointed officer. Now, uh, this is not a, this, the Sunday morning service. Jim has mentioned all kinds of different opportunities for worship on all other occasions. But the Sunday morning covenant renewal worship that goes from call to communion is not the opportunity, not the time for everybody to get a chance to display their gifts or use their gifts. That's being taught these days in some circles. Um, and the priesthood of all believers really has nothing to do with this. It really has nothing to do with the question of who should lead in the corporate worship. The pastoral ministry of the church in the New Testament does not arise because of functional or administrative reasons. You know, we just really need somebody to stand up there and lead the service, so minister might as well do it. But just about anybody can do it. And he's a teaching elder anyway, so the only thing he really is supposed to do is teach us in the sermon. Now, you see, strictly speaking, in the Bible, not everyone is a minister. Everyone is a priest. Everyone is a servant in the household of God. But the ministry is given, the ro- is given to the royal priesthood to serve them. The ministry is a servant priesthood within the priesthood to serve the royal priests. And the ministry is the distinct responsibility of a smaller group of men to represent and carry on Christ's ministry among his people. Priesthood and ministry each have their own sphere and orientation. Competition, this is what I understand, competition between priesthood and ministry is as pathological as conflict between lungs and feet and the rest of the body. Royal priests offer their lives as living sacrifices. The precise form of their service as royal priests differs. Some are doctors, some are Factory workers. Uh, but it depends. Matthew 18, John 20, binding and loosing sin. 
delivering the good gifts of the kingdom to the Lord's people, particularly baptism, the Lord's Supper, and preaching. And there's, there, there's the most perfect symbiotic harmony here. Conflicts arise solely from the wicked self-seeking which, with which we defile the good gifts of the kingdom. We defile priesthood and ministry for the Lord's people uh, and all kinds of other precious good gifts that God gives us. We just, self-serving, uh, and ministers can do this too. We, we can be arrogant and self-centered and self-assertive and we can mess things up here. But look, the minister represents Christ to his people. He's a man. He's robed or something to set him apart. And when he speaks, the people should have some confidence, some, some assurance that what he says is the word of Jesus for me. If, you're, if, if what you're going to do is cycle people through doing various parts of the liturgy, you're, you're, psychologically what you're going to do, I think, is throw people off, of the, is, is, is interrupt the confidence. I do think that the, the bond between a pastor and his people is one that's different than the bond between other people, other, other men and the people. I think that, um, I think that that ministry that we have in the service is important. I don't think we should just be sitting in the congregation and then get puked up to preach at the appropriate time. I just never understood that. Um, so, I'm sorry to say that. I didn't mean to say that. Um, well, what about elders leaving the service? Well, there, there's no principal problem with this. It's not like I or any minister has some... Some something special, something, some some special um, stuff that somebody else doesn't have. Um, so there's nothing principal wrong with this. So in some cases, say if you're in a destitute area and the minister leaves and has to go to general assembly and there's nobody there, I don't understand why a ruling elder can't do the whole service. The people will accept that. I'm not even sure why the ruling elder can't at that time and in that emergency situation even administer the Lord's supper. Uh, and I say that just to let you know that I don't think this is some kind of a weird thing where ministers have some special stuff that other people don't have that make us uh, make a, so you know what I'm saying there. I hope. But now, if you do have ruling elders lead, they should be trained. They need practice too. And also, not every elder has the gifts to do this. And you better be sensitive to that. And it's sometimes painful for people to put up with leadership from a man who doesn't know how to do it or doesn't care to really do it right. Make them prepare. You prepare. Make them study. Make them read. Make them memorize the portions they're doing. I mean, if they're going to do that, Make their, make their continued leadership in the service contingent on their performance. Uh, you know, uh, I've just seen too many 
men who are not ministers, ruling elders or deacons or otherwise, get up in front of us. I've had to deal with this myself, not at Providence. We don't do that at Providence. But in other churches. Now get up, and you've given them a passage to read last week. I said they're going to read a scripture passage of prayer. And they'll get up, and they obviously have not looked at it. They didn't mark their Bible. They get up there, and they're... And you can't find it. And then when you do find it, they've got the King James Version. You know, and they're trying to read that. And, and you, you know, they, they just picked up the Bible, obviously, when they're walking around the house. And they, they, they pray, and they pray the AT&T prayer. You know, oh, well, we just wanted this, and we just wanted this. We just want to reach out and touch people, you know, and stuff like that. And, and it's just it's painful. Um, now, not every ruling elder does that. I'm not, I'm not belittling ruling elders. But it, there's some ruling elders here, Johnny. If you lead worship, do you, you prepare? Do you think about what you're doing? Do you compose your, your uh, prayers? You will now, won't you? <laughs> That's right. Uh, and so, I don't have any principal problem with it. And I'm speaking rather strongly to you, but I, this, is what, this is what happens. And your people are more embarrassed for the men who are up there doing that kind of thing than you can imagine. And if you don't deal with it, it it's not helpful to to God's people. Yes, Kevin. <laughs> I don't. I don't know that I. Thought about. I, don't, I haven't had to deal with that situation in, in uh, our choirs in the back, um, and so that doesn't ever come up with me. I, I, pr- I probably have an opinion on it, but I don't know that I want to express it right now because I'm not sure I'm, I don't know what to think about that. I mean, again, you have to be sensitive to the situation of the congregation, as Dr. Rayburn was saying earlier, and to what they're used to, you know, and to. Um, but ideally, you know, if there's a, there's a place. This this is the thing. There's a place. Space matters in this in this whole arrangement. Where you are as a minister, communicate something. So if you're standing here and doing everything, and you're replaced all of a sudden by a woman who stands in the same place and issues commands to church, I think you've got problems. Now, that same you have that same problem with reading scripture. Now, Jim said, you know, really in the Lord's covenant renewal service, women reading scripture is, is not appropriate. I don't think it is either. There are churches, you know, with a split cancel tradition that have them do it somewhere else. But even there, see, they're very sensitive about that. They'll put they'll put the women off to the side so that uh, she's reading as a lay reader. And it's very clear from her positioning she's a lay reader. Um, and that's better. That's at least being sensitive. But if you just have one pulpit and you cycle people up through it, I think you've got problems there. And all I'm saying is, let's be sensitive about those things. Let's be careful to think through them. Uh, we do this at home. We we have all the... See, this is the way reform people are not used to thinking about appropriateness. We do it at home. When we invite visitors in their home, we have them come sit down in the living room. 
because the living room is the place where, or the den, is the place where you have to sit down and you meet with guests. You don't bring them through the hallway back into your bedroom to sit on your bed. Or you don't, and then you don't say, well, let's go into the bathroom and eat. Now, there is nothing wrong with going into the bathroom and eat. There's no law against it. You could all bring your hamburgers into the bathroom, sit on the toilet in the, in the bathtub, and you'd all eat there. It might be a little uncomfortable, but it's not just that it's uncomfortable, it's not appropriate. That's not where eating is done. You know, or the bedroom. Bedroom is for you and your wife. And you, know, you might bring people in here to throw their, their coats down when they come, but you don't go in there and kind of sit around. That's your intimate place. What's done there has meaning, and it kind of, and it kind of informs how you... You see, that's what I'm saying, is that when, when you're doing things in the service, you ought to think about those things. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.